Hello and welcome to the Better Bite podcast. My name is Katie, I'm a registered dietitian, blogger, foodie and at the heart of it just a regular girl in her 20s trying to figure things out. On this podcast we'll be talking all things food, nutrition, body image and beyond. I hope you join me while we explore the real evidence behind popular diet trends, challenge diet culture and rediscover why eating well is about enhancement not punishment. everyone welcome to this quick bonus episode i'm assuming you're here from my last episode all about the microbiome but if you haven't yet listened to that i would highly suggest you go back and give that a listen first as i explain all about what the microbiome is why it's important and how we can take care of it through our diet today's episode is really just a tag on to that episode There's a few topics and questions that tend to come up a lot when we talk about the microbiome and so I thought it would be good to just take some time to address those in this little extra episode rather than on the last one because it was a long one. So to keep this episode short and to the point, let's just jump right in. So one of the first things I wanted to talk about is leaky gut because I think this has become almost synonymous as a talking point with the microbiome. People who have done a little bit of digging and reading into the gut will have heard of this at some point because like I said they kind of go hand in hand. So unfortunately leaky gut is one of those things that's become really over pathologized everyone thinks that they have leaky gut. If you go and read into leaky gut, you probably think you have it. Um, And yeah, it's just kind of put out there as the rational explanation behind everyone's health issues um, or symptoms. You could be getting like three hours sleep a night, but it's almost presented like your fatigue is due to leaky gut and not the fact that you're getting no sleep. But true leaky gut is a lot less common than some would like you to believe. So please, please, please don't diagnose yourself with having leaky gut based off of what someone says on Instagram. But it is a real thing, at least sort of. So let's talk about it. So leaky gut is the more trendy term for what's more often called increased intestinal permeability in healthcare and this has been associated with certain health conditions such as inflammatory bowel disease, so that's your Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis for example, Um, also celiac disease, any sort of gastrointestinal infection, chemo or radiotherapy targeting the stomach or intestines, Um, cystic fibrosis, immunosuppressants and um, HIV and AIDS. So I did actually explain this in my last episode and it is one of the proposed mechanisms behind um, how our microbiome impacts our health or why looking after it is important. So go and listen if you haven't already but in essence just to recap we know that we have a really thin lining to our gut made up of something known as mucin. And this is held together by kind of Velcro-like projections known as tight junctions. And then directly behind this, we have a large proportion of our immune cells. So this barrier is really important in regulating what is allowed through and absorbed into our body, so certain nutrients, and what is kept out. So larger particles of undigested food material, anything else we might have taken in, 
with our food um, or anything else that has just ended up in our gastrointestinal system um, but also the bacteria that naturally reside in our gut so if this barrier becomes damaged in some way this means that all of these substances and bacteria that are usually kept separate are not able to come into contact with our immune system so of course this is going to trigger an immune response because our immune um, system is just going to see these as foreign bodies and as part of this immune response we're going to get inflammation now we know that low-grade chronic inflammation is linked to a lot of our modern day diseases but I just want to highlight here that this is just one proposed mechanism um, of a potential source of this inflammation. In most likelihood there's going to be multiple factors playing into this and multiple causes of the inflammation and um, so just because these two things match up doesn't mean that we have down to a T the exact cause of the inflammation that we see linked to modern day diseases so it's not as straightforward as that but it's just one possible factor or one possible source that could be contributing. Now as I've said there are certain situations that we do see increased intestinal permeability and this is usually associated with certain medical conditions or more aggressive medical treatments such as radiotherapy and chemotherapy. But some of the studies do suggest possible links with antibiotic use, especially if it's um, like frequent antibiotic use and also per diet. So for example, if we aren't feeding our bacteria with its preferred fuel source, which is fiber, it turns to the next best thing, which is protein. And this is what makes up that lining of the intestine. So the bacteria will feed on the mucin and break it down and that's where we get the damage. So the issue with claims about leaky gut isn't so much that it straight up doesn't exist, but that many times the claims are completely over-exaggerated. So like I said, leaky gut is really over-pathologized and it's made out that A, we know a lot more about it than we actually do, and B, that we're able to diagnose leaky gut and then directly trace other health conditions back to it. Common ones that I see on any, um, let's say, overconfident articles about leaky gut include things like allergies, migraines, chronic fatigue, eczema, arthritis and even things like multiple sclerosis and autism. While there are studies that suggest a link we do not have the evidence to be able to suggest a causative role of leaky gut on these conditions. What's more infuriating is that in most instances where people are ranting and raving about leaky gut and kind of overemphasizing its role and our understanding of it, they will often tell you that it can be treated with nutritional supplements and herbal remedies or with particular usually restrictive diets such as gluten-free, low FODMAP, low sugar, um, quote-unquote antifungal diets. In reality, the current evidence is pretty sparse and while I think we will start to learn a lot more, for sure we cannot make claims about, for example, autism being caused by leaky gut, nor is there any evidence to suggest that these proposed treatments work. One thing I know is that restricting certain nutrients or foods from the diet or adding in weird unregulated supplements is more likely to cause harm than good. If you want to look after your gut, you really don't need to panic about leaky gut necessarily or jump onto any weird and wonderful treatments. Just eat well. What this entails exactly is discussed in my previous episode. 
Next up, we have to talk about probiotics, which again, such a common question when we talk about the gut. So probiotics really get a lot of attention, but really this is one of the last things that we should be focusing on. We're all drawn to that magic bullet, something that we can just tick off and say, yep, did that, got health achieved for the day. But that's not really what gut health is about and how we're going to get it. So originally the thinking was that we can help to grow certain bacteria in the gut by taking it in a pill. So if a certain bacteria that was thought to be beneficial was missing from somebody's microbiome, it was thought that taking a probiotic would help to replace it. Now, a lot of the early studies looking at probiotics originally looked at um, the bacteria that was present in stool samples with the assumption that this correlated with what was presently residing within the gut. But as science progressed, we realised that this isn't always the case and probiotics are a great example of this. So when we take a probiotic, this will be present in our stool, but it isn't actually colonising the gut itself. So essentially, it's just passing through. There are some populations that there's decent evidence to suggest a benefit of taking probiotics, but these are individuals who have certain specific diseases. So ulcerative colitis and some people with IBS, for example. In these individuals, there are specific strains of probiotics that have shown that they can help to improve symptoms. Um, There's also really good evidence of a benefit in taking a specific probiotic alongside um, any antibiotic therapy and um, for a week afterwards. And this helps to reduce antibiotic-associated diarrhea. So clearly, even though they don't colonize the gut, they do have the potential to have a benefit. So this is likely to be what we call a transient effect. So they kind of work on their way through. So I don't think that should be totally ignored, but at least at the moment, there is no strong evidence of a benefit for otherwise healthy populations in taking probiotics, at least not on a population level. So it's not something that we can recommend that everybody should be doing. But everybody is different and so even though it's definitely not something that I, like I said, would recommend for everyone to take, and I think there are plenty of other more important areas to focus on to improve your microbiome, less expensive options as well, if you do particularly want to try one, there are a few things to keep in mind. So I often hear people say, oh, then I take my probiotic, just as if it's like one thing, like they just take the probiotic. But a probiotic is a bacteria. So as I mentioned in my last episode, there are thousands of bacteria um, species that live within our bodies. And a probiotic is the same. There are thousands of types and strains out there. So think of it like a vitamin. If you have iron deficiency, you can't just take a vitamin A supplement and expect it to help. (laughs) So This makes it really difficult because how can you know what probiotic is likely to help you specifically? Now you could pay for a microbiome profiling test, but like I said on my last episode, this isn't really very useful because which microbes should be present in your gut is different in everyone. So there may be certain bacteria that I want to have in my gut that you don't necessarily need to have in your gut in order for them to be just as healthy as each other. So it's very easy for us to diagnose vitamin and mineral deficiencies through blood tests. 
we don't really have an equivalent of that when it comes to our our gut <laughs> microbiome. So if you are particularly keen, the best advice is to take a specific strain of um, probiotic for at least three months and see how it affects things. So keep it to one probiotic strain, not a probiotic that's got multiple strains in there um, or chopping and changing. Keep it to the one probiotic for three months and just see how it affects you. They also come in different strengths, which will be stated in CFUs, which stands for colony forming units. So I know it's tempting to go for the highest concentration, but I would actually say to start at the lowest concentration and you can always try increasing it from there if you haven't noticed any sort of benefit. Another thing to um, keep in mind is to go for options that have an enteric coating. So this is basically a coating on or around the bacteria that are going to protect it from your stomach acid. Um, so they're usually kind of activated by pH. And so if you um, take a pill that doesn't have this coating around it, your stomach acid will just kill the bacteria. So it's not even going to make it to your gut. So a pill is actually um, going to likely have more benefit than probiotic foods as such. But as I've said, probiotics in healthy populations is more like a band-aid solution. So band-aids do have their uses, but it's not a fix-all and sticking a band-aid on a healthy piece of skin is pointless. Probiotics are expensive. It's very challenging to find one, if there even is one, that will help you as a healthy individual. And since the effects are likely to be transient, you are likely to have to keep taking them to maintain the benefit. So it's really not the most useful step um, to implement into your lifestyle in order to promote a healthy gut. It's absolutely not necessary and comes with a lot of challenges. <laughs> So a natural segue next would be to talk about fermented foods for a second. So I don't really have a lot to say about these. I love fermented foods. So these are things like kimchi, miso, tempeh. Um, however, as tasty as these are, the evidence around these being beneficial for the microbiome, beyond the benefit of any plant-based food, which many of these things are, is not particularly strong. So I think they're a great thing to include in the diet. They add variety, they're plant-based, so will be beneficial in that sense. They taste good. They're also a little bit easier to digest because the fermentation process has already started to break them down. But in terms of evidence for gut health, um, yeah, it's, it's just not really there. So kefir probably has the strongest evidence. This is like a fermented kind of milk product. It's kind of like a cross between milk and yogurt in my opinion and it has a little bit of like a fizziness to it. Sounds really gross but I actually do really enjoy a little bit of kefir every now and again. Um, but even with kefir it's not super strong evidence. So include them if you like them but don't expect them to have any hugely significant impact. Okay, so let's talk about sweeteners. Now, there are different types of sweeteners that work in different ways in terms of what actually makes them low calorie. So some sweeteners are actually the same um, amount of calories per gram as sugar, but they are a lot more intensely sweet than sugar, which means that we can use them in such small quantities that they provide negligible calories. Other sweeteners though, um, we don't actually 
absorb. So these are the types of sweeteners that I'm talking about here. So I actually talked about this a little bit in my episode about food additives, that certain additives can alter our microbiome. And these are typically the ones that we can't digest and therefore reach our colon where the majority of our gut microbes reside. As I mentioned though in the additives episode, it's not as clear cut as that. So while there are studies that show that eating these ingredients, so some sweeteners, some emulsifiers, may result in a shift in our microbiome. First of all, we don't know what this means in terms of outcomes. We don't know if it's a positive or a negative shift. But also the studies that are a little bit longer term tend to show that the shift is only temporary and so it's not something likely to produce long-term negative effects. So at the moment there isn't any strong evidence that sweeteners are something that we need to avoid for gut health but it is something we can keep researching and looking out for. I mention this every time I bring up sweeteners but I do think that there is merit in thinking about how much we rely on these. So it's not about cutting them out but how much of our diet they make up. Most foods that are high in sweeteners aren't whole foods, I would say. So try to make sure that the majority of your diet is from whole foods rather than empty foods that might be low calorie, but not necessarily providing loads of nutrition. Also, I definitely think the more sweeteners that you are used to using, the sweeter you tend to like things like you're just used to more intensely sweet items so I think it's good to kind of train your taste buds to be satisfied with the sweetness of a piece of fruit for example rather than hyper sweet foods from a ton of sugar or sweeteners. One particular class of sweetener that we can't absorb are sugar alcohols so these end in OL so like xylitol, mannitol, These can cause bloating and some gastrointestinal discomfort in some people. So if you've noticed this, try reducing these in the diet. Again, you don't need to completely cut them out, but maybe have a look at some of the food labels or foods that you commonly eat. And if you're noticing that you always feel really bloated or uncomfortable after eating these, that could possibly be a cause. So something to think about. Erythritol seems to be a sugar alcohol that's less associated with these symptoms, so you could try that instead. Finally, just to finish off, we have bloating. So bloating and wind is often something that we become overly concerned about and put down to food intolerances, but this is actually part of the microbiome doing its job. As a byproduct of fermenting food, which needs to happen as part of cultivating a healthy and diverse microbiome, gas is produced. Now, obviously, there are individuals who suffer with things like IBS, and in these individuals, their um, gut is actually more sensitive to the presence of gas and the sort of distension that occurs within your intestines as a result. So in most individuals, you would probably not even notice... um, a certain amount of gas being there, like you're not going to have any symptoms, but in IBS, it can trigger their symptoms um, a lot earlier and with a smaller amount of gas being there. And there are also certain situations where excessive bloating can be a sign of something else going on. So usually this will be coupled with other symptoms like altered bile habits, pain, um, or even other kind of non-gastrointestinal symptoms such as extreme fatigue. So if you're getting any of these or you're having bloating that doesn't go away or is happening after almost every meal, I would definitely see your GP. 
But in general, we really demonize all forms of bloating when it's really a very, very normal part of digestion. Bloating can also be caused by a lot of non-food factors. So like I've said, we often put it down to a food intolerance um, or something that we've eaten. But things like how much water we drink, restricting food in general or restricting certain foods. And then, yeah, non-dietary factors like sleep, stress, these can all cause bloating. And so I've written a whole blog post on this, which will be up soon. And I would definitely advise you to take a look at. So if you're occasionally feeling bloated, please recognize that this is normal. If you feel like you're suffering with bloating that seems more than normal, please do not start cutting out foods blindly. That is the worst thing that you can do. If you eat a lot of food with sugar alcohols, maybe reduce these first and see if that improves things. But the real issue with cutting out foods is that the foods typically associated with more bloating are the very ones that are feeding these microbes. So just think about if you've listened to this episode, if you've listened to my last episode, how beneficial these microbes are, how much we need to feed them. And if you start cutting out these foods and starving them of their preferred fuel source, what impact that might have. So it can really negatively impact the microbiome and in general also means your diet becomes more and more restrictive, leading to risk of deficiencies. Have a read of my blog post for other possible reasons for bloating to try out as well before you jump the gun and blame it on diet. If you really are concerned, start a food and symptom diary and go and see your GP. Okay, so that's it for this little bonus episode. I hope that that was useful. And like I said, it was just a few kind of topics that tend to come up, but I hope that you enjoyed them. I hope you learned something and I will talk to you all very soon in the next one. Bye.